0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Tonight, I will be continuing the story of The Princess and the Goblin by George MacDonald. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 5. The Princess Let's Well Alone When she woke the next morning, the first thing she heard was the rain still falling. Indeed, this day was so like the last that it would have been difficult to tell where was the use of it. The first thing she thought of, however, was not the rain, but the lady in the tower, and the first question that occupied her thoughts was whether she should not ask the nurse to fulfill her promise this very morning and go with her to find her grandmother as soon as she had had her breakfast but she came to the conclusion that perhaps the lady would not be pleased if she took any one to see her without first asking leave especially as it was pretty evident seeing she lived on pigeon's eggs and cooked them herself that she did not want the household to know she was there so the princess was resolved to take the first opportunity of running up alone and asking whether she might bring her nurse. She believed the fact that she could not otherwise convince her she was telling the truth would have much weight with her grandmother. The princess and her nurse were the best of friends all dressing time, and the princess, in consequence, ate an enormous little breakfast. I wonder, Lutie, that was her pet name for her nurse, what pigeon's eggs taste like, she said, as she was eating her egg. Not quite a common one. "'for they always picked the pinky ones for her. "'We'll get you a pigeon's egg, and you shall judge for yourself,' said the nurse. "'Oh, no, no,' returned Irene, suddenly reflecting that "'they might disturb the old lady in getting it, "'and that even if they did not, she would have one less in consequence. "'What a strange creature you are,' said the nurse, First to want a thing and then to refuse it. "'But she did not say it crossly.' and the princess never minded any remarks that were not unfriendly. Well, you see, Lutie, there are reasons, she returned, and said no more, for she didn't want to bring up the subject of her former strife, lest her nurse should offer to go before she had had her grandmother's permission to bring her. Of course, she could refuse to take her, but then she would believe her less than ever. Now the nurse, as she said herself afterwards, could not be every moment in the room, and as never before yesterday had the princess given her the smallest reason for anxiety, it had not yet come into her head to watch her more closely. So she soon gave her a chance, and, the very first that offered, Arine was off and up the stairs again. This day's adventure, however, did not turn out like yesterday's, although it began like it, and indeed today is very seldom like yesterday, if people would note the differences even when it rains. The princess ran through passage after passage and could not find the stair of the tower. My own suspicion is that she had not gone up high enough and was searching on the second instead of the third floor. When she turned to go back, she failed equally in her search after the stair. She was lost once more. Something made it even worse to bear this time, and it was no wonder that she cried again. Suddenly it occurred to her that it was after having cried before that she had found her grandmother's stair. She got up at once, wiped her eyes, and started upon a fresh quest. This time, although she did not find what she hoped, she found what was next best. She did not come on to a stair that went up, but she came upon one that went down. It was evidently not the stair she had come upon, yet it was a good deal better than none, so down she went, and was singing merrily before she reached the bottom. There, to her surprise, she found herself in the kitchen. Although she was not allowed to go there alone, her nurse had often taken her, and she was a great favourite with the servants. So there was a general rush at her the moment she appeared, for everyone wanted to have her, and the report of where she was soon reached the nurse's ears. She came at once to fetch her, but she never suspected how she had got there, and the princess kept her own counsel. Her failure to find the old lady not only disappointed her, But made her very thoughtful. Sometimes she came almost to the nurse's opinion that she had dreamed all about her, but that fancy never lasted very long. She wondered much whether she would ever see her again, and thought it very sad not to have been able to find her when she particularly wanted her. She resolved to say nothing more to her nurse on the subject, seeing it was so little in her power to prove her words. Chapter 6 THE LITTLE MINER The next day the great cloud still hung over the mountain, and the rain poured like water from a full sponge. The princess was very fond of being out of doors, and she nearly cried when she saw that the weather was no better. But the mist was not of such a dark, dingy grey. There was light in it, and as the hours went on it grew brighter and brighter, until it was almost too brilliant to look at, And late in the afternoon, the sun broke out so gloriously that Irene clapped her hands, crying, See, see, Luti, The sun has had his face washed. Look how bright he is. Do get my hat and let us go out for a walk. Oh dear, how happy I am. Luti was very glad to please the princess. She got her hat and cloak, and they set out together for a walk up the mountain, for the road was so hard and steep that the water could not rest upon it and it was always dry enough for walking a few minutes after the rain ceased. The clouds were rolling away in broken places like great over-woolly sheep whose wool the sun had bleached till it was almost too white for the eyes to bear. Between them, the sky shone with a deeper and purer blue because of the rain. The trees on the roadside were hung all over with drops which sparkled in the sun like jewels. The only things that were no brighter for the rain were the brooks that ran down the mountain. They had changed from the clearness of crystal to a muddy brown. But what they lost in colour, they gained in sound, or at least in noise. For a brook, when it is swollen, is not so musical as before. But Irene was in raptures with the great brown streams tumbling down everywhere. And Lutie shared in her delight, for she too had been confined to the house for three days. At last she observed that the sun was getting low and said it was time to be getting back. She made the remark again and again, but every time the princess begged her to go on just a little further, a little further, reminding her that it was much easier to go downhill and saying that when they did turn they would be at home in a moment. So on and on they did go, now to look at a group of ferns over whose tops a stream was pouring in a watery arch. Now to pick a shining stone from a rock by the wayside. Now to watch the flight of some bird. Suddenly the shadow of a great mountain peak came up from behind and shot in front of them. When the nurse saw it, she started and shook, and catching hold of the princess's hand, turned and began to run down the hill. What's all the haste, nurse asked Irene, running alongside of her. We must not be out a moment longer. But. We can't help being out a good many moments longer. It was too true. The nurse almost cried. They were much too far from home. It was against express orders to be out with the princess one moment after the sun was down, and they were nearly a mile up the mountain. If His Majesty, Irene's papa, were to hear of it, Luty would certainly be dismissed, and to leave the princess would break her heart. It was no wonder she ran. But Irene was not in the least frightened, not knowing anything to be frightened at. She kept on chattering as well as she could, but it was not easy. Luti, Luti, why do you run so fast? It shakes my teeth when I talk. Then don't talk, said Luti. But the princess went on talking. She was always saying, look, look, Lutie. But Luti paid no more heed to anything she said, only ran on. Look, look, Lutie. Don't you see that funny man peeping over the rock? Lutie only ran the faster. They had to pass the rock, and when they came nearer, the princess saw it was only a lump of the rock itself that she had taken for a man. Look, look, Luty. There's such a curious creature at the foot of that old tree. Look at it, Lutie. It's making faces at us, I do think. Lutie gave a stifled cry and ran faster still, so fast, that Irene's little legs could not keep up with her and she fell with a crash. It was a hard downhill road, and she'd been running very fast, so it was no wonder she began to cry. This put the nurse nearly beside herself, but all she could do was to run on the moment she got the princess on her feet again. Who's that laughing at me? said the princess, trying to keep in her sobs, and running too fast for her grazed knees. Nobody, child, said the nurse, almost angrily. At that instant, there came a burst of coarse tittering from someone near, and a hoarse, indistinct voice that seemed to say, Lies, lies, lies. Oh, cried the nurse with a sigh that was almost a scream, and ran on faster than ever. Nursie, Lutie, I can't run anymore. Do let us walk a bit. What am I to do, said the nurse. Here, I will carry you. She caught her up but found her much too heavy to run with, and had to set her down again. Then she looked wildly about her, gave a great cry, and said, We've taken the wrong turning somewhere, and I don't know where we are. We are lost. The terror she was in had quite bewildered her. It was true enough that they lost the way. They had been running down into a little valley in which there was no house to be seen. Now, Irene did not know what good reason there was for her nurse's terror for the servants had all strict orders never to mention the goblins to her, but it was very discomposing to see her nurse in such a fright. Before, however, she had time to grow thoroughly alarmed like her, she heard the sound of whistling, and that revived her. Presently she saw a boy coming up the road from the valley to meet them. He was the whistler, but before they met his whistling changed to singing. And this is something like what he sang. Ring, dodd, bang, go the hammers clang, hit and turn and bore, whiz and puff and roar. Thus we rive the rocks, force the goblin locks, see the shining ore. One, two, three, bright as gold can be. Four, five, six, shovels, mattocks, picks. Seven, eight, nine, light your lamp at mine. Ten, eleven, twelve, loosely hold the helve. We're the merry minor boys make the goblins hold their noise. I wish you would hold your noise, said the nurse rudely. For the very word goblin at such a time and in such a place made her tremble. It would bring the goblins upon them to a certainty, she thought, to defy them in that way. But whether the boy heard her or not, he did not stop his singing. thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. This is worth the sifting. Sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, there's the match and lay in. Layton. Nineteen-twenty, goblins in a plenty. Do be quiet, cried the nurse in a whispered shriek. But the boy, who was now close at hand, still went on. Hush, scush, scurry. There you go, in a hurry. Gobble, gobble, goblin. There you go, a woblin. Hobble, hobble, hoblin. Cobble, cobble, coblin. Hob, bob, goblin. There, said the boy, as he stood still opposite them. There that'll do for them. They can't bear singing, and they can't stand that song. They can't sing themselves, for they have no more voice than a crow, and they don't like other people to sing. The boy was dressed in a miner's dress with a curious cap on his head. He was a very nice-looking boy, with eyes as dark as the mines in which he worked, and as sparkling as the crystals in their rocks. He was about twelve years old. His face was almost too pale for beauty, which came of his being so little in the open air and the sunlight, for even vegetables grown in the dark are white. But he looked happy, merry indeed, perhaps at the thought of having routed the goblins, and his bearing as he stood before them had nothing clownish or rude about it. I saw them, he went on, as I came up, and I'm very glad I did. I knew they were after somebody, but I couldn't see who it was. They won't touch you as long as I'm with you. Why? Who are you? asked the nurse, offended at the freedom with which he spoke to them. I'm Peter's son. Who's Peter? Peter the Miner. I don't know him. I'm his son, though. And why should the goblins mind you, pray? Because I don't mind them. I'm used to them. What difference does that make? If you're not afraid of them, they're afraid of you. I'm not afraid of them. That's all. But it's all that's wanted, a pair that is. It's a different thing down there. They won't always mind that song, even, down there. And if someone sings it, they stand grinning at him awfully. And if he gets frightened and misses a word or says a wrong one, they. Oh, don't they give it to him? What do they do to him? asked Irene with a trembling voice. Don't go frightening the princess, said the nurse. The princess? repeated the little miner, taking off his curious cap. I beg your pardon. You oughtn't to be out so late. Everybody knows that's against the law. Yes, indeed it is, said the nurse, beginning to cry again. And I shall have to suffer for it. What does that matter, said the boy. It must be your fault. It is the princess who will suffer for it. I hope they didn't hear you call her the princess. If they did, they're sure to know her again. They're awfully sharp. Lootie," cried the princess. Take me home. Don't go on like that said the nurse to the boy almost fiercely. How could I help it? I lost my way. You shouldn't have been out so late. You wouldn't have lost your way if you hadn't been frightened, said the boy. Come along. I'll soon set you right again. Shall I carry, your little highness? Impertinence, murmured the nurse, but she did not say it aloud, for she thought if she made him angry, he might take his revenge by telling someone belonging to the house, and then it would be sure to come to the king's ears. No, thank you, said Irene. I can walk very well, though I can't run so fast as Nursey. If you will give me one hand, Lutie will give me another, and then I shall get on famously. They soon had her between them, holding a hand of each. Now let's run, said the nurse. No, no, said the little miner. That's the worst thing you can do. If you hadn't run before, you would not have lost your way. And if you run now, they'll be after you in a moment. I don't want to run, said Irene. You don't think of me, said the nurse. Yes, I do, Lutie. The boy says they won't touch us if we don't run. Yes, but if they know the house that have kept you out so late, I shall be turned away, and that would break my heart. Turned away, Lutie? Who would turn you away? Your papa, child. But I'll tell him it was all my fault, and you know it was, Lutie. He won't mind that. I'm sure he won't. Then I'll cry, and I'll go down on my knees to him and beg him not to take away my own dear Luti. The nurse was comforted at hearing this, and said no more. They went on walking pretty fast, but taking care not to run a step. I want to talk to you, said Irene, to the little miner. But it's so awkward, I don't know your name. My name's Curdie, little princess. What a funny name, Curdie. What more? Curdie Peterson. What's your name, please? Irene. What more? I don't know what more. What more is my name, Luty? Princesses haven't got more than one name. They don't want it. Oh, then, Curdie, you must call me Irene, and no more. No, indeed, said the nurse indignantly. He shall do no such thing. What shall he call me then, Luty? Your Royal Highness. My Royal Highness? What's that? No, no, Luty. I won't be called names. I don't like them. You told me once yourself it's only rude children that call names and I'm sure Curdie wouldn't be rude. Curdy, my name's Irene. Well, Irene, said Curdie, with a glance at the nurse which showed he enjoyed teasing her, it is very kind of you to let me call you anything. I like your name very much. He expected the nurse to interfere again, but he soon saw that she was too frightened to speak. She was staring at something a few yards before them in the middle of the path, where it narrowed between rocks so that only one could pass at a time. It is very much kinder of you to go out of your way to take us home, said Irene. I'm not going out of my way yet, said Curdie. It's on the other side of those rocks the path turns off to my father's. You wouldn't think of leaving us till we're safe home, I'm sure, gasped the nurse. Of course not, said Curdie. You dear, good, kind Curdie. I'll give you a kiss when we get home, said the princess. The nurse gave her a great pull by the hand she held. But at that instant, the something in the middle of the way, which had looked like a great lump of earth brought down by the rain, began to move. One after another, it shot out four long things like two arms and two legs, but it was now too dark to tell what they were. The nurse began to tremble from head to foot. Irene clasped Curdie's hand yet faster, and Curdie began to sing again. One, two, hit and hew. Three, four, blast and bore five, six, there's a fix, seven, eight, hold it straight, nine, ten, hit again, hurry, scurry, bother, smother, there's a toad in the road, smash it, squash it, fry it, dry it, you're another, up and off, there's enough. As he uttered the last words, Curdie let go his hold of his companion and rushed at the thing in the road as if he would trample it under his feet. It gave a great spring and ran straight up one of the rocks like a huge spider. Curdie turned back a-laughing and took Irene's hand again. She grasped his very tight, but said nothing till they had passed the rocks. A few yards more and she found herself on a part of the road she knew and was able to speak again. Do you know, Curdie, I don't quite like your song. It sounds to me rather rude, she said. Well, perhaps it is, answered Curdie. I never thought of that. It's a way we have. We do it because they don't like it. Who don't like it? The cobs, as we call them. Don't, said the nurse. Why not, said Curdie. I beg you won't. Please don't. Oh, if you ask me that way, of course I won't. Though I don't know a bit why. Look, there are the lights of your great house down below. You'll be at home in a few minutes now. Nothing more happened. They reached home in safety. Nobody had missed them or even known they had gone out, and they arrived at the door belonging to their part of the house without anyone seeing them. The nurse was rushing in with a hurried and not over gracious good night to Curdie, but the princess pulled her hand from hers, and she was just throwing her arms around Curdie's neck when she caught her again and dragged her away. Lutie, I promised a kiss, cried Irene. Princess mustn't give kisses. It's not at all proper, said Luti. But I promised, said the princess. There's no occasion, he's only a minor boy. He's a good boy, and a brave boy, and he's been very kind to us. Lutie, I promised. Then you shouldn't have promised. Lutie, I promised him a kiss. Your Royal Highness, said Lutie, suddenly grown very respectful, must come in directly. Nurse, a princess must not break her word, said Irene drawing herself up and standing rock still. Luti did not know which the king might count the worst, to let the princess be out after sunset, or to let her kiss a minor boy. She did not know that, being a gentleman, as many kings have been, he would have counted neither of them the worse. However much he might have disliked his daughter to kiss the minor boy, he would not have had her break her word for all the goblins in creation. But as I say, the nurse was not lady enough to understand this, and so she was in a great difficulty, for she insisted someone might hear the princess cry and run to sea, and then all would come out. But here, Curdie came again to the rescue. Never mind, Princess Irene, he said. You mustn't kiss me tonight. But you shan't break your word. I will come another time. You may be sure I will. Well, thank you, Curdie, said the princess, and stopped crying. Good night, Irene. Good night, Lutie, said Curdie and turned and was out of sight in a moment. "'I should like to see him,' muttered the nurse as she carried the princess to the nursery. "'You will see him,' said Irene. "'You may be sure Curdie will keep his word. "'He's sure to come again.' "'I should like to see him,' repeated the nurse and said no more. "'She did not want to open a new case of strife with the princess by saying more plainly what she meant.' Glad enough that she had succeeded both in getting home unseen and in keeping the princess from kissing the miner's boy, she resolved to watch her far better in future. Her carelessness had already doubled the danger she was in. Formerly, the goblins were her only fear; now she had to protect her charge from Curdie as well. Chapter Seven, The Mines. Curdie went home whistling. He resolved to say nothing about the princess for fear of getting the nurse into trouble, for while he enjoyed teasing her because of her absurdity, he was careful not to do her any harm. He saw no more of the goblins and was soon fast asleep in his bed. He woke in the middle of the night and thought he heard curious noises outside. He sat up and listened, then got up, and opening the door very quietly, went out. When he peeped round the corner, he saw, under his window, a group of stumpy creatures whom he at once recognised by their shape. Hardly, however, he begun his one-two-three when they broke asunder, scurried away, and were out of sight. He returned laughing, got into bed again, and was fast asleep in a moment. Reflecting a little over the matter in the morning, he came to the conclusion that, as nothing of the kind had ever happened before, They must be annoyed with him for interfering to protect the princess. By the time he was dressed, however, he was thinking of something quite different, for he did not value the enmity of the goblins in the least. As soon as they had had breakfast, he set off with his father for the mine. They entered the hill by a natural opening under a huge rock where a little stream rushed out. They followed its course for a few yards when the passage took a turn and sloped steeply into the heart of the hill with many angles and windings and branchings off, and sometimes with steps where it came upon a natural gulf, it led them deep into the hill before they arrived at the place where they were at present digging out the precious ore. This was of various kinds, for the mountain was very rich in the better sorts of metals. With flint and steel and tinderbox, they lighted their lamps, then fixed them on their heads, and were soon hard at work with their pickaxes and shovels and hammers. Father and son were at work near each other, but not in the same gang. The passages out of which the ore was dug, they called gangs. For when the load or vein of ore was small, one miner would have to dig away alone in a passage no bigger and gave him just room to work, sometimes in uncomfortable, cramped positions. If they stopped for a moment, they could hear everywhere around them, some nearer, some further off the sounds of their companions burrowing away in all directions in the inside of the great mountain, some boring holes in the rock in order to blow it up with gunpowder, others shoveling the broken ore into baskets to be carried to the mouth of the mine, others hitting away with their pickaxes. Sometimes, if the miner was in a very lonely part, he would hear only a tap-tapping, no louder than that of a woodpecker, for the sound would come from a great distance off, through the solid mountain rock. The work was hard at best, for it was very warm underground, but it was not particularly unpleasant, and some of the miners, when they wanted to earn a little more money for a particular purpose, would stop behind the rest and work all night. But you could not tell night from day down there, except from feeling sleepy and tired, for no light of the sun ever came into those gloomy regions. Some who had thus remained behind during the night although certain there were none of their companions at work, would declare the next morning that they heard, every time they halted for a moment to take breath, a tap-tapping all about them, as if the mountain were then more full of miners than ever it was during the day, and some, in consequence, would never stay overnight, for all knew those were the sounds of the goblins. They worked all at night, for the miners' night was the goblins' day. Indeed, The greater number of the miners were afraid of the goblins, for there were strange stories well known amongst them of the treatment some have received whom the goblins had surprised at their work during the night. The more courageous of them, however, amongst them Peter Peterson and Curdie, who in this took after his father, had stayed in the mine all night again and again, and although they had several times encountered a few stray goblins, had never yet failed in driving them away. As I have indicated already, the chief defense against them was a verse, for they hated verse of every kind, and some kinds they could not endure at all. I suspect they could not make any themselves, and that was why they disliked it so much. At all events, those who were most afraid of them were those who could neither make verses themselves nor remember the verses that other people made for them, while those who were never afraid were those who could make verses for themselves for although there were certain old rhymes which were very effectual, it was well known that a new rhyme, if of the right sort, is even more distasteful to them, and therefore more effectual in putting them to flight. Perhaps my readers may be wondering what the goblins could be about working all night, seeing they never carried up the ore and sold it. But when I've informed them concerning what Curdie learned the very next night, they will be able to understand. For Curdie had determined, if his father would permit him, to remain there alone this night, and that for two reasons. First, he wanted to get extra wages that he might buy a very warm red petticoat for his mother, who had begun to complain of the cold of the mountain air sooner than usual this autumn. And second, he had just a faint hope of finding out what the goblins were about under his window the night before. When he told his father he made no objection, for he had great confidence in his boy's courage and resources. I'm sorry I can't stay with you, said Peter, but I want to go and pay the parson a visit this evening, and besides, I've a bit of a headache all day. I'm sorry for that, father, said Curdie. Oh, it's not much. You'll be sure to take care of yourself, won't you? Yes, father, I will. I'll keep a sharp lookout, I promise. Curdie was the only one who remained at the mine. About six o'clock, the rest went away, everyone bidding him good night and telling him to take care of himself, for he was a great favourite with them all. "'Don't forget your rhymes,' said one. "'No, no,' answered Curdie. "'It's no matter if he does,' said another, "'for he'll only have to make a new one.' "'Yes, but he mightn't be able to make it fast enough,' said another, "'and while it was cooking in his head, "'they might take a mean advantage and set upon him.' "'I'll do my best,' said Curdie. "'I'm not afraid.' We all know that, they returned and left him. Good night.